0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Okay, uh, tonight is our last night studying systematic for now, probably resume in the fall. Um, but I noticed, um, did you all get the doctrine of God, the single sheet here? I noticed that we are very close to finishing a major unit in, in Grudem's textbook, and that is the whole section of the doctrine of God. I was only kind of halfway through discussing angels last week um, and could easily have spent the whole time on angels tonight. Uh, so we're going to spend some time on angels, but we're also going to press on and, and do this section on Satan and demons. That will bring us to a good stopping point. Uh, I give you these outlines. Uh, if I don't hit everything on the outline, take it home and read it. Better yet, get Grudem's book you know, and, and read it. It's well written and it's a good, a good way to study. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we just confess our weakness and frailty and our need for You. I confess that for myself, Lord, that uh, apart from You, I can do nothing and I need Your help to teach tonight. Father, I pray for each person that's come Lord, that you would please minister tonight. Just give us an insight into the invisible spiritual world that surrounds us. Lord, that we would, by the words of Scripture, by texts of Scripture, be able to see what can't be seen with the eye. That you would open our hearts and our minds to understand what surrounds us and what kind of warfare goes on around us at all times. And that we would know, Lord, how we are to act and be very grateful for your protection and your salvation. So be with us tonight. Help us to make the most of the time we have. In Jesus' name, amen. So you see the sheet on the doctrine of God? We've come a long way, haven't we? We've covered a lot of things in this study on systematic theology. We looked at the existence of God, how we can know that God exists. We've talked about the knowability of God. Uh, Can we really know God and how much of God can we know? Is it possible to know an infinite being? We've talked about that. We talked about the incommunicable attributes of God remember that? What are the incommunicable attributes of God? What does that mean, incommunicable? Right. It's something that would be true of God, but not true of us. For example, self-existence would be an incommunicable attribute. We are dependent on him. He created us. We are created beings. He is an uncreated being. And there's other incommunicable attributes. And then we talked about the character of God, communicable attributes. You remember how we went through a list of many, many communicable attributes of God. Uh, My son and I are going through in the mornings, early in the morning, uh, and he's memorizing a single verse for each of the 26 attributes that are on the sheet. Um, If you have an attribute list that only has 25, I think you probably have the 25, I left wrath out for some reason. So I had to stick it in the middle. I didn't want it to be the last attribute we studied, so I (laughs) put it at number 21. Um, But at any rate, we talked about the communicable attributes of God, and it's a delightful study really to go through and understand our God to understand adjectives that Scripture ascribes to God. And then we talked about the doctrine of the Trinity, the three-in-oneness of God, that God is one God existing eternally in three persons. Then we had a wonderful time, at least I did, on the doctrine of creation. I really, really enjoyed that. We spent a lot of time on that, looking at creation and evolution in particular, and just some things, really just touching on these things. Really could have spent a lot more time on creation. And the doctrine of God's providence and how God rules over all things in everyday life. A mysterious doctrine, really. It's hard for us to understand how God is active in everything that happens around us at all times. But that's the doctrine of providence. And then, a few weeks ago, we looked at miracles, the doctrine of miracles, what the Bible says about miracles, touched on whether miracles still happen today, how we could define miracles. We looked at prayer. um, And again, in each case, just really touching on these things. So much more we could say. Uh, why God wants us to pray and how we can pray effectively. Last week we began to look at the doctrine of angels. And I even gave you some pictures of angels. So, I mean, that's an encouraging thing. Anyway, does anyone need a handout on angels? I got 20 more, or about 15 more. Uh, I held them here for those that didn't get one last week. Um, So raise your hand if you did not get one last week. And um, if you did get one last week, I'd ask you to refrain and not take one until everyone who didn't get one last week has one. And then if there's any left over, you can get one. Okay, so we're going to finish our study on angels and then I'm going to spend some time on Satan and demons and then we'll be done with the section on the doctrine of God, okay? So last week we began on angels and we uh, talked about them, that they are created spiritual beings. On page one of the handout, Grudem gives us a definition, angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence but without physical bodies and so he goes through each aspect of that definition. You can read that. We talked about different names for angels and different kinds of heavenly beings. On page 2, the cherubim and the seraphim, the living creatures. Uh, somebody pointed out to me in that, that in Ezekiel, it actually calls the living creatures later on, and Ezekiel calls them cherubim. So it could be that there's only two categories and the living creatures are all cherubim. I don't know. All I know is that they, these are different verses uh, that ascribe, that give words to these spiritual beings. We talked about how there's a rank and order among the angels. There's an organization in heaven. There really is a structure and an organization. We get that out of the term archangel, ruler angel, like Michael, who's an archangel, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, 1 Thessalonians 4. And we talked about the chief princes, etc., the thrones and principalities, Colossians 1.16. We also talked about names of specific angels. Contrary to Frank Peretti, there are only two angels named in the Bible. To get all the other names you need to read, Piercing the Darkness and This Present Darkness and all the other works of Frank Peretti. And they are very imaginative, aren't they? Triscalon and some of these other things. I don't know where he gets this. But, I mean, I wonder what would sound like an angel name if you're writing a novel, you know? But uh, to him, he thought these sounded like angel names. But we've got two, Michael and Gabriel. Those are the two that are named. But that's a pretty significant thing, that angels have names is important. It shows that they have personalities. They have a personal history, um, that they uh, are, uh, that, that they... Uh, how you can have a relationship with them they have knowledge and emotions and other things all this out of names. Angels exist only in one place at one time. unfortunately we did not answer the age-old question of how many angels can be on the head of a pin. Uh, I left that to others more adept. To, I said that first thing you have to do is to find the pin head size and nobody did that for me so we just had to move on. Um, but uh, the angels can only be in one place at one time. How many angels are there? Many myriad myriad of myriad thousands 10,000 times 10,000. There's no sense in doing the calculation. There's just many, more than you could number, really. Um, Do people have individual guardian angels? I said that the scriptural support for that was pretty slim. I think instead that we should assume that angels are watching over us all the time, ministering, protecting us, Psalm 91, lifting our feet so that we will not strike our feet against a stone. But whether we get a specific angel assigned to us our whole life, again, Uh, slim evidence for that. And for me, it wouldn't be any more comforting to know one way or the other. Just to know that God does dispatch angels to protect us is sufficient for me. Um, Angels do not marry. We talked about that. And then we discussed the power of angels. We said that angels have great power. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Angels are depicted with awesome displays of power and glory. Their appearance is terrifying. If one of them were to appear in our midst right now, we would be overwhelmed with terror. Really, that's the consistent human reaction to the appearance of an angel. Really shaking with fear and becoming like a dead man or dead woman, like a stone. That's the effect that it has. Daniel chapter 5, sorry, chapter 10, verse 5 through 8. I looked up, this is Daniel speaking, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. They didn't even see the angel and they're terrified and they're hiding. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. This is Daniel's reaction to the vision of an angel. They're immense, powerful, glorious beings. Matthew 28, the angel, his appearance is like lightning, the one that moves the stone back from Jesus' tomb so that we can go in and see it. The eyewitness could and then they can tell us that the tomb was empty. Jesus is long gone, walked right through the wall. Somehow, but the angel was sent to move the stone so we could get in since we don't have resurrection bodies yet and are not able to walk through stone walls. But Jesus could do that. At any rate, the angel came down. His appearance was like lightning. There's always this brightness, this brilliance. And so uh, he sits on the stone. I find that interesting. I just do. I don't know why. I just The mighty angel moves the stone and sits on it. And the guards are so afraid that they shake and become like dead men. We get the same thing in Luke 24. Then my favorite description of all is in Revelation 10, 1 through 3. Now this is a mighty angel. Why are you laughing? I mean, a number of you are laughing. It's because we're going to get to the pictures of the angel in a minute. I know exactly why. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot in the land. And he gave a loud shi- shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voice of the seven thunders spoke. This is a mighty and powerful warrior being, isn't it? This is not a sissy angel and i'm worn out with sissy angels and as a matter of fact i had a conversation afterwards with someone we were talking about the damage that the image of sissy angels does because if you have a biblical view of angels and realize that they're on their faces before christ then you have a sense of the greatness of christ you see that angel in revelation 10 he would be on his face before god almighty covering his face before christ this is the you know a sense of the scale ever higher scale of who Christ is. And He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Far above. There's no, no comparison even. So this mighty, powerful angel, as mighty and strong as He is, far above us in ability and power, is far below Christ in His power and sovereignty. He's been given the name that is above every name. So we do no service or honor to Christ or to the Bible by having these flowery weak, friendly depictions of angels. Now I'll tell you what, all humor aside, you go on some of these websites and go into there's a lot of worship of angels out there. There's a lot of mysticism and a lot of, you know, weird stuff that is demonic, I think. I really think it's evil. And the Bible specifically warns us against worshiping angels. This is something we must not do. But I find that a lot of these folks are interested in angels because they don't want God. Angels are a supernatural being that you can be friendly with and they, they become like a, a, a partner you can talk to and they help you in life and all that, but you don't have to stand before them on Judgment Day. And so it's, it's everything you like about the spiritual world without any of the terror of the holiness of God and without ever having to repent and become a Christian and follow a walk of holiness. So I think that's why there's so much interest in angels. You know? It's kind of like a spiritual buddy that stays with you through everything and comforts you and brings consolation. But this is not the way angels are depicted. My, my vision of angels is that they're warriors. They're fighting all the time. That's what they do. They're, they're, at, they're at battle. And why? Because there is war in the heavenly realms. That's what's going on in heaven. That's what's going on, not at the highest level of heaven, but there was warfare in, in the heavens, it says. And so there's this kind of fighting going on in the spiritual realm. And so they are powerful and strong to do that warfare. All right? We've talked about the angel of the Lord before. I'm not going to go through it again. I think the angel of the Lord passages in the Old Testament probably are the pre-incarnate Christ. Let's get on page 7 to the issue of the gender of angels. All right. Now, why in the world would I bring this up? Well, it's because, first of all, there's biblical evidence in this area. And second of all, because the artistic renditions are so false. For the most part, artistic renditions show angels as what? Not children mostly, That's in there, but mostly what? Women. I would say almost always angels are depicted as women. I don't understand this when the biblical evidence is so overwhelmingly the other way. I mean, it's not even a little. There's a lot. In almost every case where you can discern a gender of the angel, it's a, it's a man, usually a mo- young man. And so it will use in the Hebrew the, the word ish, which is uh, the word for male, basically. Um, like when it says that she she'll be called woman for she was taken out of man, the word for woman is ishah and the word for man ish. So that's just like in the English we get man and woman. There's a connection between the two. Um, but, you know, Daniel 10.5, I looked up and there before me was an ish, a man, dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. So Luke 24.4-6, while well, they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, andres. Again, in the Greek there's two different words that you could translate men. One would be anthropos, from which we get anthropology, and it could it would probably be best to be translated person. It means human being, anthropos. So you get anthropology as a study of human beings. But then there's another word, andres, which could be translated husband, or man or male. This is very much a gender-connected word. That word is of great interest to any that are studying gender roles. When you study that word and follow it through, and then it's very interesting to compare the translation of that word with some of these gender-inclusive Bibles. They're very unfair to the Greek because that word should be translated man or male, and frequently it's it's made neutral uh, in these gender-inclusive Bibles. But at any rate, these angels, they're clearly angels, um, appear and they're called andres in in clothes that gleam like lightning and stood beside them. Again, in Acts 1.10, uh, as Jesus ascends to heaven and he's up there and a cloud hides him from their sight, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Again, the same Greek word, andres. Now, the masculine pronouns and grammar are consistently used for angels. When you're going to have a, a personal pronoun, he said or the, whatever, it's always the uh, uh, masculine pronoun that's used. Many times you can't discern either way. I'm not saying in every case you could discern. I'm just saying when you can discern, it's always male. Um, however, angels do not reproduce. They're not strictly speaking male as opposed to female. So it begs the question, why then the consistent male imagery? And I think this actually relates also to the same question concerning God. Why is God depicted as father and not as mother? Why the strong male imagery if God is a spirit and has not a body like men, as the catechism says, and doesn't reproduce, etc. Why this? And I think it has to do with authority and power and specifically with angels with their military function, although even that distinction is getting blurred in our day, as you can tell. Very much blurred. But for the most part, we've thought of warriors being men. And so I think there's a sense of power and strength and authority that the text wants to get across. Now, this is my guess. It's the best I can do. But the data can't be controverted. It's there. It's a consistent portrayal of angels as masculine and i'm guessing why i mean i'm not i'm trying my best to put together that they don't reproduce they're not they don't marry or given a marriage and yet they're consistently portrayed this way i think it probably has to do with their authority their power and their military function that's my guess at it so why then the artistic renditions the other way i just have to trace it back i think to a satanic attack on scriptural truth not a major one it's not a big time attack There are more significant attacks that the devil makes. But I think that he is in every way trying to controvert or overturn scriptural truth. At at, at any point, he wants to go the opposite way. And so he's going to portray uh, angels in this Victorian way, you know, like the greeting cards I have on page six. I mean, that's not going to scare anybody. It's beautiful. It's enticing and attractive, but it's not going to scare anybody. And so I just find no biblical warrant for this kind of artistic thing, and I find it actually harmful, not helpful. The babies are just babies. They're just cute. And I don't know where that comes from at all. But um, I know that comes from the Sistine Chapel. Okay. Any questions or comments about that, the topic of the gender of angels? Mm. Yes. I don't, maybe you talked about this before, but um, is there a word in Hebrew and Greek that is gender neutral? Yeah, anthropos, I think, would be a good one in the Greek. I don't know a corresponding word in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. I will say in, in Genesis 5, it says when they were created male and female he called them man adam so they're both kind of called by his name which is i think the biblical root for why the woman takes the husband's name when she gets married there's definitely a a reason for it in genesis five he calls them together male and female he calls them adam he calls them by his name so i guess in the hebrew then the word you're looking for would be adam from which we get adam but it means man and the word in the Greek would be anthropos. Like, well, perhaps, Psalm one, how blessed is the man who walks in the is that each, each? I would have to look at it. Sometimes they're just participles, and it's blessed is the one, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes the, the, it, it would be a man. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times the translators, when they come to a participle, they're going to want to make it personal and so they stick in the word man. And sometimes there actually is an anthropos or a, you know, a man in the text. Sometimes it's just that they're. it would be more, better translated, blessed is the one who who walks in the, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. It's a good question. Okay, let's move on. When were the angels created? Well, we can say that the angels were definitely created at least by the sixth day of creation. So he had finished everything. He created all things... In the heavens and the earth, Exodus 20.11, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Do you see that? So that would include all that's in the heavenly realms, and that would include all these spiritual beings, the cherubim, the seraphim, all of that. They're all created by the sixth day. And then the Lord rested on the seventh day. The fall occurred before Eve was tempted in the garden, and Adam, since the devil is a fallen angel, we get a hint, I think, from Job, which I find very fascinating. Uh, God speaking to Job says, where, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set and who laid its cornerstone? Verse 7, While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. So basically, it seems that the angels were created kind of early and then just watched and celebrated while God did the rest of the work. It's kind of interesting then. You'd think that God would create then the, the heavenly realms as an audience and say, now watch this. And then little by little, all these things start to happen and the angels are just thrilled with what God's doing. Yeah, go ahead. So then his angels. Would that come between the sixth day and I don't know. Before Genesis 3. Really, I would say before Genesis 2 because he puts the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So already there's evil in the universe when the tree is set up there in the garden. So I, I can't set the time. I believe you're dealing with six days, so there's not a much to choose from. Somewhere in there um, that the fall occurred. I don't know how or when or whatever. So anyway, it implies that the angels are created before the physical universe. However, we can't be dogmatic about that. The place of angels in God's purpose. Angels show the greatness of God's love and plan for us. Uh, we are created in the image of God. Humans are said to be created in the image of God, but angels are never spoken of that way. Interesting, isn't it? When you stop and think about it. Uh, also, it says that we shall judge angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3 Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Even though we are now lower than angels, someday we will judge them. Now, I think that this could simply refer to the devil and his angels. Possibly. But some most commentators actually just extend it to the angelic realm as a whole. Um, I'm thinking to myself, what kind of angels are being judged? And it could be the fallen angels. But either way, I mean, angels are powerful beings, and at some point we're going to be over at least some category of angels, namely those that are being judged. Um, so that's, that's impressive. Uh, angels serve us. In Hebrews 1.14 it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So they're ministering to us. They're serving us all the time. I have a hard time thinking about the fact that they're also assessing us all the time, too. You know? they, they're there always seeing what we do. You know? So I wonder about that. Angels cannot bear children in their image. Uh, Genesis 5.3, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. This is not a small thing when you stop and think about it. The power for procreation, for reproduction that God has given the human race is a very significant thing, very important. Angels do not have that power, that ability. And very significantly for us to meditate on is this. Sinful angels cannot in any way be saved. There is no salvation available for them. There's no atoning sacrifice. There's no gospel. Christ did not become incarnate to save angels. He offers them nothing but wrath. There's no possibility, no provision whatsoever. Now, I think this is fascinating. Listen to Grudem's note on this. We see, therefore, that God created two groups of intelligent moral creatures. Among the angels, many sinned, but God decided to redeem none of them. This was perfectly just for God to do, and no angel can ever complain that he has been unfairly treated by God. Now, among the other group of moral creatures, human beings, we also find that a large number, indeed all, have sinned and turned away from God. As with the angels that sinned, God could have let all of us go on in our self-chosen path toward eternal condemnation. Had God chosen to save no one out of the entire sinful human race, he would have been perfectly just to do so, and no one could complain of unfairness on his part. But God decided to do much more than merely meet the demands of justice. He decided to save some sinful beings. If he had decided to save only five human beings out of the entire human race, that would have been much more than justice. It would have been a great demonstration of mercy and grace. If he had decided to save only 100 out of the whole human race, it would have been an amazing demonstration of mercy and love. But God has in fact chosen to do much more than that He has decided to redeem out of sinful mankind a great multitude whom no one can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is incalculable mercy and love, far beyond our comprehension. The striking contrast with the fate of angels brings this truth home to us. Isn't that something? And how wrong are we ever to impugn God for sending sinners to hell? Because they deserve it. Frankly, we deserved it. What's remarkable is not that any of those sinners go to hell, but any of us end up in heaven. That's the amazing thing here because none of the angels have possibility of redemption. They're sent to gloomy pits, chained, waiting for judgment day, those that transgress in Second 2 Peter 2.4. No hope of salvation for them. And they know it too, don't they? The devil knows that his time is short, the Bible says. He knows there's no gospel for him. Doesn't that make you just stop and praise God for your salvation? Doesn't that make you just stop and say, thank you, Lord, that you saved me? I didn't deserve it. Thank you that there was a redemption. And what a redemption. The book of Hebrews calls it a great salvation that God Himself concerned for us would take on a body and suffer under the wrath of God for us. An incredible salvation. A magnitude such that we will never be able to understand. We'll never plumb the depths of the riches of God's glory. And his mercy to us. But I think the angels suffer, I think they, they serve in this case as a contrast. And it's all the more amazing when you talk about the angels that didn't fall and yet will not be adopted to be his very own sons, to sit with him on the throne. This is an incredible thing, and they didn't do anything wrong. They serve him constantly and far better than us. This is the grace of God. And I think it's an, a marvelous thing. Angels also remind us that the unseen world is real. The Sadducees denied the angels. In Acts 23.8, thus acting as precursors to modern rationalists who don't believe anything they can't see. The Sadducees were that way. Only when Elisha's servant's eyes were opened did he realize the reality of the invisible spiritual world constantly around us. Wouldn't that be something if God would do that for us tonight? Just open our eyes to see it. Wouldn't you be terrified to see it? What's going on around us in this room? Do you think nothing's going on in the spiritual realm? The Word of God is being taught tonight. I mean, don't you think something's going on in this room tonight? And I wonder if we could see it, what effect it would have on us. Be Hiding under our beds tonight, I don't know if we'd find a safe place. You know, it's a good thing in a way. We're just sheep. We don't even know what's going on over our heads all the time. Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. So, also, the author to Hebrews connects faith with this invisible world of angels. Hebrews 12.22, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon the thousands of angels in joyful assembly. So the Bible's teaching on angels reminds us of the reality of a world that we don't know very much about at all. It's a whole kind of unknown world, and we just take it by faith. and We have little glimpses, kind of like a, a fence, and we can look through peephole and see some things, but we don't see the whole thing at all. Angels are also very much examples for us, aren't they? Uh, They obey God perfectly. And so it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what does as it is in heaven mean? I think he has in mind the angels. God does, or the angels do God's will perfectly in heaven, as we said before in the parenting thing, all the way, right away, with a happy spirit. And it doesn't matter what God asks them to do everything from bringing a message to a virgin to pouring out a bowl of wrath at the end of the world in which literally millions of people are killed and they're ce- celebrating and singing righteous you are holy and true they're just it's just what you're doing because they deserve it and all that and they're just that way angels just do not doesn't enter their minds to question what god does anything he does is right and so they they always obey You are just in this judgment, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. Isn't that something? What's an angel's assumption there, logically? God, if you did it, it's just. It's just the way you are. I could never have the level of justice that you have. Who am I to question your justice? Because you did it, it's just. That's their attitude. That's the way that they think. And Jesus said that's the kingdom. When the kingdom comes, God's will is done that way. And you can see, therefore, the kingdom hasn't come fully in your life yet, has it? It's coming. You know, It's already here, but it's not fully there yet because we don't obey all the way right away with a happy spirit. We hesitate. Angels uh, also have a deep reverence and fear of the Lord, and yet they delight in Him constantly, as we've seen in Isaiah 6, covering their faces. Uh, Angels find it their greatest joy to worship God constantly and do His will without hesitation and joyfully, and so should we. Angels carry out some of God's plans. They bring messages to earth. The old covenant given to Moses, you can read these verses later, Um, around the time of Christ's birth they're giving messages by the way as I've said before the word angel is just the English version of Angelos which means messenger they're the ones that bring a message and so they had the message of God's glory and of his greatness around the time of Christ's birth they carry out some of God's judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah for example and certainly the angel of the Lord that destroyed the Assyrian troops however because in Isaiah 38 it says that the angel of the Lord did it? I think it may be Christ Himself who killed 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. But either way, I think a single angel could do that. No problem at all. No problem at all. And then King Herod in Acts 23, Acts 12:23. You remember that? Right in the middle of a speech, because he didn't give glory to God, the angel comes and strikes him dead, eaten with worms, and he dies. Uh, angels also minister directly to God's people in many invisible ways. Wouldn't it be something to have a catalog what angels have done for you in the last year? You really have no way of knowing all the ways that you've been protected and ministered to. I mean think about it this way Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying and wrung out at the end physically of what he could endure, and God sends angels to strengthen him for his final sacrifice. So he's got enough strength to go and die, basically. And it's the angels that are sent to do that. They're ministering spirits. And they will accompany Christ as an army on his second coming. Matthew 16:27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. <laughs> you know, if one angel can do that work, 185,000 Assyrian men, what about thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels coming back to fight? I wouldn't stand in the way of that army, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Revelation 19, I saw heaven open standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus Christ. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Isn't that something? So there's Jesus, the Word of God, leading out and everybody following Him. For all their power and strength, they follow Christ and worship Him. Angels directly glorify God. They're always praising God, glorifying Him for His attributes and His actions. And they're interested in the salvation plan. They're curious about it. They don't know the future except what God's told them. And so they're tracking with it in history. And, And that's why they're praising God when Jesus is born. You know, they're excited. And you remember in the book of Revelation, when one of the particular judgments is unfolded, there's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour because they're just so stunned by what God is doing. And so they're kind of tracking with history. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? But they long to look into these things. Now, what are our, what is our relationship to angels? Well, first of all, we should be aware of angels in our daily lives, that they're there. Uh, we should, however, have certain cautions about angels. Don't buy any sissy angels. I mean, let's just be done with sissy angels. Now, if you have already bought them, that's fine. But from this point on, we're just not going to buy any more sissy angels. All right. But aside from that, beware of receiving false doctrine from angels. You know, angels masquerade as uh, angels of light. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And false doctrines can come in with these kind of displays of supernatural power and presence. I think a lot of that Eastern mysticism and a lot of that, I think there is definitely a supernatural aspect to that. And I think that the the angels are able to do that. Do not worship angels. Pray to them or seek them. Colossians 2.18 And then the question, do angels appear to people today? That's the last question in Grudem's outline and I didn't have a chance to answer it. So maybe you all can, you know... Biblically, angels appear as God says. And when He wants to, they appear. Whether He continues to do that or not, there's no biblical reason to think He would stop doing that. That's the way I would answer that. However, there are so many testimonies of angels appearing and all that that I think are just demonic things. I really don't think that they are angels. Any question about angels? Yeah, go ahead
0: procreation comment how does that match up with the, the use of the term sons of god in the
1: old testament yeah you're specifically referring to genesis chapter 6 when it says that the sons of god went to the daughters of men and had children by them and there are different interpretations of that um one possible interpretation is that the angel i uh, sorry the demons inhabited human bodies and demonically forced themselves on the women that's one possibility Another possibility is that the term sons of God does not refer to any supernatural beings at all, but refers to kings or powerful people who basically took a harem for the first time. Uh, now, Lamech had broken the pattern of marriage by marrying two wives, Ada and Zillah, okay, earlier in, in Genesis 4. But now in Genesis 6, we're beyond that. They marry any, wom- any woman they want. They let their lust run wild, and anybody they want, they take. And these are probably mighty men who are strong, tall, physically imposing and that's one interpretation of the sons of God term. You know, uh, that they are leaders, they're kings, they're important and powerful men who can't constrain themselves to one woman and they basically go anywhere they want and take anything they want. Those are different ways of answering that. Yeah, Alan? Yeah, I think exactly that. That's a great verse. I, I didn't have it on the outline, but there's more, there's presence, uh, there's joy in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. So that would imply that there's angelic celebration. There's also a sense in which the angels gather dead people or gather the elect, the wheat, up into the barn, and that they're brought. You know, the angels bring us to God. B- Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress has an angelic entourage that bring these two Christian and hopeful right up to the gates. And there's biblical support for that. Um, he'll send out his angels and they'll gather the elect from one end of the heavens to the other in Matthew 24. So the angels are really active and part of that's their emotions. They're excited when good things happen. They love to see sinners get saved. Yeah? Would you say that angels have a choice then because the ones that to Satan when they Do they have a uh, almost like a free or I don't know how you say that. The ability to, to... They have the ability to fall, the ability to sin but it seems as though there was probably i would i would kind of reading beyond the scripture would assume that there was a probationary period and that it's kind of set now you know and that there aren't ongoing angels falling you know on a daily basis but i don't i can't really go that far with scripture i just would have to assume that they're just set and the rebellion has occurred and they're called demons and then the devil has his angels and god has his and that's it so yeah <coughs> Well, they were the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So they had children. They had children by them, it says in Genesis 6. And that's why I lean toward the fact that the sons of God were kings. They probably were kings because they were genetically superior in some regards. They were physically larger, stronger, more intelligent, just in every way kind of at a higher level. And they have children, and so their children are also... It says they were the heroes of old, the Geborim, the powerful ones, men of the name is what it says in the Hebrews. So they're just very, very big and strong. And then some people trace them down to the Anakites that were still in the land when Joshua enters and you know, they're, they're big people like Goliath or whatever. But I think it all tends toward a human you know, procreation. You have to say, well, why would a demon being inside somebody cause the offspring to be physically large? I mean, when you start thinking genetically, I would have to say that I think that probably the parents were physically large and that what's going on is that they're marrying any of the women they choose. But there are some people that think that somehow a demonic influence can make the children that are born of that union huge and they get Genesis 6 as their support. That's a good question. Yeah? When I read accounts of Jesus casting out demons and the mm-hmm. demons pronounce who he is. And then when the slave girl who was possessed by demon spirit identified Paul as a messenger that I got. I'd always sort of wondered about what their motives were. But yes, you've talked about angels, you've brought out the aspect of their personality that is just likely to mm-hmm. utter or inclined to utter spontaneously perhaps right. about God's glory and greatness. And so I'm wondering if it's kind mm-hmm. of the same yeah, I think so. And actually, yeah, I think, you know, it's meditating on this very phenomenon, namely that demons speak God's name. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's caused me to realize, I, you know, I said before that the most important thing is in Matthew 16 when it says, you know, you have to answer this question, who do you say the Son of Man is? Right? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's not enough to save you, is it? The demons say that. No, actually, the key is like the treasure hidden in the field. That out of joy for finding Christ, you sell everything you have and he becomes your treasure. That's something a demon would never do. They're terrified of Jesus, the Son of God, and yet they believe he's the Son of God. So I think it goes beyond. You have to believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, but you have to delight in that and want him to be your savior and your master and your king. He's the treasure in your field, hidden in the field. And you say, wow, this is what I want to live for. So, I think the demons just speak out of this, you know, you're the Christ, the Son of God. Well, that's a good segue into our study on Satan and demons, and we've got 15 minutes. But you have the outline, so I'll get as far as I can, and then you can just read it. So, Satan and demons are fallen angels. So, there's a direct connection between angels and demons at this point. Spiritual beings that are evil. Um... What is the origin of demons? Well, the universe was created good, of course. Genesis 1.31 says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning and the sixth day. So everything was created good. But by the time of Genesis 3, Satan uh, had already fallen and was evil. Uh, therefore, there was at some point a rebellion of angels. Now, we already asked and tried to figure out when that was. And I don't know. I mean, just early on, there was a rebellion. Um, the devil fell. Now, if you were to ask me how in the world did the devil use his free will or his ability to choose to choose evil which didn't exist before he did it, I don't have the first idea. And I don't know any theologian that does. I don't know anybody that can answer the question of the origin of evil. It's a very, very tough question. I don't, I, just, just like every other theologian, say, I don't know. It, but we know it's here. And we know that God has nothing to do with it and that God created all things. We just know these things. But where it popped up from, it's hard to know. But the devil and his angels became evil. They rebelled against God. Uh, at some point, Second 2 Peter 2.4 says, If God did not spare angels when they sinned. Stop there. Angels can sin. That's what that verse says. And they did sin. He didn't spare them, though. He sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Now, the word hell is just a translation of a Greek word. I think it's Tartarus or to the pit. So they're not in the lake of fire yet. You know how Jesus said, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? I don't believe there's anybody in that fire yet. Uh, you know there's there's different you know but i just think we don't have our full punishment or our full reward until judgment day when both the righteous and the wicked are resurrected some those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned now the rich man and the rich man and lazarus is in some kind of suffering and torment now but i don't think it's the full deal yet any more than the saints have the full deal yet either because they don't have their resurrection bodies. You see what I'm saying? Now you see cartoons and depictions of the devil down there and he kind of lives in hell. It's kind of like his place. You know what I'm talking about? And, and they just kind of like it down there. It's just that's it's just like some creatures like heat, I guess. And they just and that is not what it's all about. They would be terrified of the lake of fire or else it would not be punishment. It's just like I've said to some of my offspring. If you liked it, it wouldn't be discipline. I've had it said to me, "Daddy, I don't like such and such," and I say, "If you liked it, we'd do something else." That's you know. So hell cannot be pleasing to the devil, or it wouldn't be punishment for him. You see what I'm saying? I believe that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire after the millennium and the Revelation 20. I think that's yet to come, and so he has some freedom here on earth to move around and cause trouble for us, and so do his his. other angels, demons. I believe there are, there's a category of demons that through transgression, for some extraordinary reason, are chained up and do not have the freedom. That's what Second 2 Peter 2.4 says. He's, he's put them into gloomy dungeons to be held for the day of judgment. So they're held. They're restrained. Now, Grudem says that the held implies everybody. All the demons are in some way restricted. They're kind of on a chain. I don't think that that's a good, a good version of that because you remember when Jesus sees the demoniac of the Gadarenes and he, the, he's, he's terrified of them. It's, it's actually on your sheet here somewhere. I'm just going way out of order here, but that's all right. Uh, we're not going to get to it all anyway. Page 4. So, in page 4, you see Luke 8, 28 through 32. Do you see that kind of, you know, a few inches up from the bottom? The demons were absolutely terrified of Jesus, weren't they? I mean, they are terrified of Jesus. When he saw Jesus, the demon saw Jesus, or the man with the demon in him saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So this is the demon speaking this word of confession, so to speak. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Well, I don't know that there's any human being that had a full understanding of that at that point, but the demon did. And he knows who he's talking to. He's terrified of Jesus. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me, he says. So apparently, he's afraid of something that could happen to him now. So he's afraid of the torture. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go to the abyss. Now, what is this abyss? Well, I think it's connected to this Tartarus, this pit that is referred to in Second Peter 2 and in Jude 6, a place of temporary holding, of restriction and somewhat suffering for the demons, short of the lake of fire. That's what I read it. And they're afraid that he is going to send them there probably because other demons have already been sent there and they don't want to join them. You see what I'm saying? Demons have a certain measure of freedom now. Some do. They have a certain measure of freedom. And I'm going to be preaching about this precise thing on Sunday when Jesus talks about an evil spirit that comes out of a man going through arid places seeking rest, doesn't find it, comes back to the house he left. Okay? And I, and I actually in that sermon I have 13 descriptions of demons from this text so it's not even in this and I said to Jeremy I said this is a sub point of my first major point the 13 descriptions of the demons it's a 14-page sermon I don't know how in the world I'm gonna get through it on Sunday I'm you know I don't know what I'm but there's 13 things you can learn about demons from this one text and so come and hear that because we're not gonna get anywhere near that tonight but there's you know, demons were terrified of Jesus and clearly afraid that he would send them to the abyss. And instead, he's gracious to them and lets them go into the pigs, you remember? Why would he be gracious to them? He's not being gracious to them. He's ultimately being gracious to his people. Ultimately, in the end, it's better for us if the wheat and the tares are allowed to grow together, if evil's allowed to continue on in the world until the end. He has a better plan than getting rid of evil right now. And so the devil's allowed to go. And the demons are allowed to go free for now. But in the end, they'll be judged. Now, how did the, how did the fall did uh, the rebellion occur back on page 1? Well, there's a number of passages that some people put forward that believe describe the fall of the devil. And I think they may, but I don't know for sure. The reason is the two strongest, the Old Testament passages, namely Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, are both couched in terms of the fall of an earthly king, the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14, and the king of Tyre in Isaiah. In Ezekiel 28 and so he's talking about Babylon and then the language just seems to rise up above higher than you would think would be appropriate for an earthly king and the same thing happens in Ezekiel 28 where he's talking about Tyre and the fall of Tyre and then suddenly the language just gets up to a higher level than you would think would be appropriate for an earthly king and so that's why some commentators believe these passages speak of the fall of Satan himself let me read them Isaiah 14 12 and following it says but How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will sit above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Does that sound familiar, by the way? How did the devil tempt Eve? Remember? God knows that you will be like him. That's the very same thing that he fell into. Remember how it says you shouldn't lay hands on a young person, a young man, lest he become conceited. By that means ordain them to the ministry, let's say. Make them an elder. Too soon, uh, uh, Somebody shortly after their conversion, lest they become prideful and fall into the same trap as the devil. So that's a very insightful verse that shows us that the devil's sin, first and foremost, was pride. He fell into the sin of pride. And you can see it in the series of I will statements. I will, I will, I will make something of myself. I'm going to be great. And he gets it by looking at what God's made him. You know, he looks at himself and says, hey, I'm something. You know, look at me. He may have been the most powerful of the angels. If there's a gradation of angels, it's like all these other angels can't hold a candle to him. And he starts to believe his own press. He starts to get egotistical and starts to float up and says, I'm going to take God on. Well, this is the amazing thing. I mean, we should never have a dualistic view of the universe that there's God and there's the devil. Not at all. He's, he's just a created being. The gulf between God and all created beings is just infinite. He's just so much higher than any angel and then the devil himself. It's not an equal struggle. Although God in his providence, for some reason, has made it seem equal. There's, there's advances and there's defeats, there's victories and there's losses. But God could make it nothing but victories if He wanted to. He's just got that much power. And so, also, the devil's very existence is in God's hands. He can just, you know, like I said, pull the plug on his existence any time, and he's out, he's gone. There's nothing he can do. And yet he felt he could take God on. And isn't it funny how humans think that too? You know, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. They say the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Psalm 2. The Lord scoffs at them. We, we think we can take God on. Well, if the devil can't take God on, we certainly can't. But anyway, this is Isaiah twelve or 14, 12 through 15. Uh, same thing in Ezekiel 28. You can read it. Um, let's go on. Satan is portrayed to be, on page 2, the head of the demons. The name Satan itself is a technical term in the Hebrew language for the Um, plaintiff I guess in a court trial plaintiff is the one pressing the accusation and so he's the one making an an accusation he's the accuser and that's what Satan means actually the Hebrew verb for to accuse is Satan you know different pronunciation but that's how it would come across in the English and so it says in Zechariah 3.1 then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him You know, this is the same thing we saw in Revelation 12.10. I didn't read the verse, but it says that he is the accuser of the brethren. He's the one that accuses them before God day and night. This is the really unfair thing about Satan. He's very vicious because he tempts us to sin, entices us, creates a whole world system so that we will sin, and then he accuses us of the very sin that we committed under his leadership and temptation. That's unfair, I think. And I remember you know, talking to my kids about this. The devil's pulling on us all the time to sin. And as soon as we come across the line, then he gets holy on us and points the finger and accuses. He who is the w- most wicked created being ever, he's the one that, that, that has done more sin than any of us can imagine, but yet he's pointing the finger. And the sad thing is he's right. <laughs> we did that sin. You know, It did break God's law. He is right. He is the accuser. And so the devil's accusations had to be shut up and that's what God did at the cross so that, that he couldn't accuse us anymore. But anyway, he's the accuser. It's used in many places as the personal king of the demons, Satan. It says, one day the angels came to present themselves before God and Satan also came with them. First Chronicles one. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Christ faced Satan personally and resisted him. After the devil tempted him and said, uh, Worship me and I'll give you all these kingdoms, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus faced Satan personally. Satan has other names as well. The devil, serpent, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air, the evil one, the great dragon, Beelzebub, the prince of demons, and the god of this age, and perhaps there are some others you could find in the Scripture. The intelligent and powerful organization of demons, would be known as Satan's kingdom, okay? With him at the top. Jesus said in Matthew 12:26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? you see that? His kingdom implies that the devil has a kingdom and he's top in charge. So he has power and rules over these. Uh, you know, it's an odd thought, isn't it, when you think about devils cooperating because cooperation's a good thing, you know? But evil people cooperate. Look at the Nazis and all they accomplished by working together. You know, cooperation itself is neutral. You know, cooperation for what? The men at the Tower of Babel were making an evil tower in defiance of God. And they were cooperating greatly to do it. So the the devil and, and his angels cooperate and somehow organize themselves to accomplish evil things in this world. That's the devil's kingdom. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan was personally involved, or is personally involved, in tempting, opposing, and killing Christ and in resisting his kingdom. So when uh, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil, I like this one, Luke 4.13, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. One of the things that bothers me the most about the devil is how persistent he is. He's very buoyant. He doesn't give up easily. Have you noticed that? I mean, he'll nail you. You resist him. He'll flee from you, but he'll be back. I mean, he comes back. You know what I'm saying? And that's very distressing. You don't just have to defeat him once. You have to stand firm again and again and again. Uh, As long as we're in this world of testing. I think the better translation of the Lord's Prayer is, um, it says, lead us not into temptation." but deliver us from the evil one. The Greek supports that translation. It's the devil that we're asking God to deliver us from because he's very intelligent and he's been studying us for a long time. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows your tendencies and he does not fight fair. You can't say, well, I was tired, I was weak, I was... No excuses matter. That's exactly when he's going to come and get you. That's, That's the time when you need to be on your guard the most. So the devil is vicious in this matter. All right. So the evil one opposes Christ. All of these on page 3 show his activity. The devil is the one who snatches the seed sown along the path so that it doesn't bear, seed, bear fruit. It's the devil that comes and takes it from the heart. Uh, it is the devil that plants the tares in the fields. The wheat is there, but the devil plants the tares. Uh, then there's Peter who says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you when it comes to his crucifixion. remember. Remember what Jesus says to him? Get behind me, Satan, your stumbling block to me. Very interesting how the devil would tempt Jesus at that moment not to go to the cross and yet later would inhabit Judas and tempt him to be killed. Not tempt him, but actually orchestrate his death. I think the devil didn't know what to do with Jesus. I've said that before. The devil was confused. What do I do with Jesus? Do I kill him or do I not? And so in in Peter, he tempts him not to go to the cross. But then in Judas, he orchestrates that he would go to the cross. The devil's confused. Should that surprise us that God's ways are higher than the devil's ways? No. I think we should realize that God used the devil's own hatred to double back on himself and with his own spear, he pierced his own skull. Habakkuk chapter 3. So he's got the, the spear of death right at Christ's heart. When he punctures Christ's heart and Christ dies, his own kingdom gets destroyed. It's an amazing thing. He had to kill Jesus. But anyway, that's it. We are out of time